You're listening to another episode of Dr. Mark Halstead's Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. If your sports medicine practice is like mine, or if you're an athletic trainer in the training room, you probably get a bunch of kids coming in with that presumptive diagnosis of a jammed finger. I don't think my final diagnosis has ever been a jammed finger, but we use that term loosely with finger and hand injuries. I kind of consider it equivalent to shin splints of the legs. It's a term that used, but could have many other actual better descriptors or diagnoses for what's going on. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk sports hand and finger injuries. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Today on the podcast, my guest is Dr. Chuck Goldfarb. He is an executive vice chair in the Department of Orthopedics at Washington University and the chief of the Pediatric and Adolescent Orthopedic Surgery Division. He has a unique practice covering both birth anomalies of the hand and sports injuries. I'm not sure you'll find another hand surgeon in the country with those two main interests. But most important and relevant to this discussion, he is a fellow podcaster, and he is the co-host of the very successful Upper Hand Podcast, which he co-hosts with Dr. Christopher D. Welcome to the podcast, Chuck. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. I have watched from afar and have admired what you have done with this podcast, and I'm thrilled to be a guest. Well, I am very envious of yours because I know you have a much larger listenership than I do, and you have cool swag because I have not gotten to the point of swag yet for my podcast, but hopefully after the first year, I'm looking into some stuff, so we'll see to get out those listeners. I think a little swag reward is always good. Oh, the swag was a bigger hit than the podcast. I'm sure of it. (laughs) (laughs) You never know. You never know. I've read your guys' feedback. You guys get some really good feedback on your podcast, so if you are interested in hand stuff, definitely make sure you check that out. You know, what's interesting is the feedback that we get, and I'm certain that you get it as well, is really what makes this fun. Yeah. You know, the audience engagement and questions and continuous dialogue, that's the best part of being a podcaster. Yeah, I I agree. It's really fun. You know, when I started this, the the person who got me interested in it was a guy I grew up with in high school who actually just so happened we both grew up in Wisconsin. We both settled literally five miles apart from each other in Missouri, kind of odd. He has a podcast studio, so he had been bugging me for years to just start basically doing this stuff. And he says, just getting your knowledge out there. And so so I did. I've, I've loved doing it. It's really fun, as I know you you agree with as well. Oh, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. So let's talk about hand injuries. And I'd love to hear your approach to the patient that comes in with their self-described jammed finger. What exactly do you do? How do you approach that in the office? Well, it is something that we see a lot of. You know, I guess I think about it in a couple of different ways. Part of it is actually you know, figuring out what's going on with the jammed finger Sometimes it's recovering from what treatment has previously been provided, say, at urgent care, and we can talk about that. Sounds corny, but I really do believe a history is really important for the jam finger, and it really guides me. And I know that sounds elementary, but it's true, because if it's truly a jam, that's helpful to know. If it's a hyperextension or hyperflexion injury, if it's catching a ball versus throwing a ball, all those things matter. I guess I would say for most quote-unquote jam injuries, it's the PIP joint that's affected, but the DIP joint can be affected as well. And sometimes there's enough swelling and discomfort where it's not immediately evident which one. So I start with a good history. Maybe I'll stop there and see how much more specific you would like me to be. 
Oh yeah, no, feel free. I just kind of go through and, and walk us through. You have a patient comes in and you have that. What, what's your thought process with all this? As I'm talking to the patient, I'm really kind of trying to understand, you know, who's doing the talking from the other side of the table? Is it the <laughs> child or is it the parent? While I'm having the conversation, I'm watching what they're doing with their hand because mm-hmm. many unspoken cues will exist. How swollen and bruised it may be and really how much the child can localize what's going on. And then I really do get into the exam. And hopefully, if I'm patient enough, I can get a good exam. But it's not always possible. So again, focusing on which joints involved. And then if the child is cooperative, and maybe that means it's been a couple of days since the injury and not immediately after the trauma, my exam is essentially focused on a few things. One, understanding if the flexor tendons are intact. And that would be the FDS and FDP. Two would be understanding if the extensor tendons are intact. So the central slip at the PIP joint and the terminal tendon at the DIP joint. And then next, I want to understand if the joints are stable. So a little gentle, and it doesn't take much, varus and valgus stress. I feel like I can do that even if the child is pretty uncomfortable because if it's unstable, it's usually really unstable. That's my very quick hands-on exam. If the child is really swollen, then I might start with an x-ray. I will say the x-ray has to be perfect. So the AP radiograph, you know, hopefully it's easier easier to do an AP, but the lateral has to be perfect mm-hmm. at the joint that matters most. And so that's why I try to start by understanding where the issue is and then send them to x-ray. Because if it's not a perfect x-ray, things can be and will be missed. You mentioned the x-ray, and I know you have the benefit, as well as many of your hand partners, of fluoroscopy. How much do you use that as opposed to just a standard radiograph? I think it's hard to get a perfect lateral view on a standard radiograph. And so if a kid comes in with a jammed finger, I am almost always doing the C-arm mm-hmm. because I know it's so easy to perfect the x-ray. It's quick, just doesn't slow me down in clinic, which is part of the goal for sure. So I can get the information I need and move on. When you're doing that evaluation, are, are there any things that kind of jump out to you that for you are concerning that are kind of like the red flags? Like you see this on the exam and you're really worried about this hand injury. I would say most jammed fingers, and again, no matter which joint was jammed, the child will present with the finger held straight. Again, maybe swollen, but certainly held straight. And then when the finger is not straight, that's when I get worried. So maybe there is a tendon injury that's affecting the balance. So that would be my first cue. Obviously, if it's deviated in a radial direction and an older direction, that's obviously concerning. And I don't know that I get too concerned about complaints on the level of discomfort, because as you know, every kid's different. And I guess I would say, if I can't get a good exam, and if the radiographs are normal, my routine is just to put them in a cast, as overkill as that might be, or put them in a little splint, and send them away for a week, Mm -hmm. and see them back one week later and re-examine them. And that's not meant to be a penalty, it's just meant to be a reality check on what we're able to do in the clinic, because I'm not going to fight, and I don't want to inflict discomfort, and so that's my general approach with a difficult exam. Now, one observation that I've made, and I'd love to get your opinion if you feel that this is a pretty good generalization. When I am looking at a kid's finger after they've had a sports injury or you know anything else, if it doesn't have to necessarily be from sports, if they have bruising, particularly on that volar aspect, I don't know that I have yet to see one that doesn't have some associated fracture somewhere. It's almost always I see the bruising and then there tends to be a fracture associated with it with rare exception. I mean, I, there certainly are exceptions to that, but once I see that, it's almost, I can pretty much guarantee that there's going to be a fracture somewhere on the x-ray. 
I think that's fair. I mean, the only thing that might might be an exception to that is there could be a tendon injury, mm-hmm. like an avulsion type tendon injury, which could also cause bleeding. But I think that's completely fair. I would go beyond that to say that, you know, swelling is obviously a problem, right? And so we're going to work to mitigate swelling. I love using Coban, wrapping from the fingertip towards the palm, making sure it's not too tight because that is a risk. But swelling's not a problem, you know, and swelling is going to persist and the child can get back to sports well before the swelling is gone as long as they, you know, meet some checkboxes, which we can talk about later. But I agree with you. Bruising is a bit more concerning. You mentioned doing the little gentle varus and valgus stress to the finger. Now, I feel like I could do that pretty well with a knee. I don't know that I can necessarily, that at least in, in my hands, in my fingers, I suppose, that I, I feel like I'm super comfortable around any of the, the digits. Maybe the thumb uh, at the MCP joint, I may feel a little bit more comfortable there, but but I don't know that I've ever really felt like really gross laxity. I, I don't know. Is there? Do you have any like tips or pointers for that as far as kind of a, an easy way to, to kind of get a, a handle on that? Well, first I would say you probably hadn't felt it because it's really uncommon. Okay. It, it's super uncommon to have a complete collateral ligament injury of anything other than the MCP joint or the thumb, but it can happen. And I, it's just, it's a matter of stabilizing the proximal bone and gently stressing. And it really is gentle because if it's torn, it'll be grossly unstable. So for the PIP joint and DIP joint, I test an extension. The MCP joint has to be tested in flexion. But again, for me to be really alarmed, I first try to understand where the child is sore. If they are directly sore over the collateral, and that might be mid-collateral or insertion or origin, and then I do the gentle stress test, and it really seems to cause a reaction, then, you know, the x-ray will be helpful. I don't usually do any advanced imaging, but I do think a gentle stress test is easy, and it should be comfortable, and I have full confidence that if there was a significant injury, you would find it. Keeping along that lines of the ligamentous injury, since we're, we're touching on that right now, and this is, I'm sure, passed on from residency program to residency program, fellowship program to fellowship program, about the do not stress the suspected gamekeeper's thumb because you may create the Stenner lesion. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't know if this is a family podcast or if I can curse, but I will not. Um, <laughs> but I would just say that's baloney. Okay, fair enough. Because <laughs> I mean, here, so I used to, I used to say that too, and then the more I thought about it, the more I conversed with my peers. You know, the reality is this: the biggest trauma that joint is ever going to have is the trauma that caused whatever happened. And you or I stressing it in clinic cannot come anywhere close to that level of trauma. So mm-hmm. we are not going to cause a stenter lesion. Now, the other critique is maybe there's a non-displaced, for the gamekeeper, a non-displaced base of proximal phalanx fracture, and you'll displace it. Same logic. I don't think that's true. And so I don't mind doing a gentle stress test. But I'll tell you my trick, and if you have access to a mini C-arm machine, is I don't stress them until I go to the mini C-arm room. And then I do it all at once. I can mm-hmm. image and stress. And, and sometimes that little bit of extra information can be helpful. Just for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with the term gamekeeper's thumb, we think about that. We talk about sports. Oh, gamekeeper. It must be something related to sports. But what is the real origin of gamekeepers? We use a lot of different terms for one injury. So we use skier's term, which is allegedly synonymous with gamekeeper's thumb which is synonymous with an ulnar collateral ligament injury of the thumb MCP joint. Most of us use all those terms interchangeably, and it's not really the intention. A hundred years ago, apparently, in England, (laughs) maybe in the United States, essentially the gamekeepers 
would ring the necks of the fowl in preparation, I guess, for celebratory events. And doing that over and over and over caused a chronic laxity, apparently, of that ligament or a tear that, you know, just never healed. And so that's meant to imply a chronic injury, but we all use it the same. And skiers thumb out, it's pretty obvious, holding your ski poles, going down the mountain, and your thumb is not protected and you jam it against the snow. So all meant to be the same. Going back to the jam finger for a second, when we're talking about the jam finger, like what's what's your differential if you're thinking through your head, someone comes in with that concern of jam finger, what what are kind of like the, the top kind of several diagnoses that you would be thinking about? I would say that probably in assuming there is a legitimate injury, not just a hyper-concerned family, probably the top diagnosis would be an injury to the PIP joint and would be what I term the volar plate fracture. This is an injury and I'll describe it, but this is an injury, the problem is Overtreatment for sure. And so it is caused by a jam, maybe a hyperextension jam of the PIP joint. And the very volar or palmar and proximal aspect of the base of the middle phalanx is avulsed. And so, really, the volar plate, which is the volar support of the PIP joint, pulls the small fragment of bone off. And so you have a tiny fracture. And what needs to happen with that injury is perhaps a couple of days of rest, at worst or at most a week of rest in a splint, and then motion. What I usually do if I see them relatively acutely in clinic is buddy tape and work on motion with edema control. The problem we see is not that this ever becomes unstable because it does not. The problem is not that it becomes a non-union because it does not. The problem is urgent care, not to pick on anybody, but urgent care always (laughs) puts them in a finger splint and you don't see them for three or four weeks and then you really do have a problem because the finger gets stiff. Yeah, get rid of the alumafoam splint. Do you have situations where you would use that? Because I, I kind of consider the alumafoam splint synonymous to me as the knee immobilizer in sports medicine for the knee, which we hate the knee immobilizer in sports medicine because it does nothing. There's no injury that I know of outside of a fracture that we may be temporarily stabilizing that a knee immobilizer is necessary. We don't need to use it for ACLs or patellar dislocations or whatever, but it's given out like candy, just like the alumafoam splint is. So do you have a situation where you would use a standard, just straight up alumafoam splint? It sounds like my feelings for the alumafoam splint are (laughs) equal to your knee immobilizer. (laughs) You know, I hate it. I'll go so far as to say is I don't remember the last time I used it. If I really think I need a splint, then I need a good splint and I'll send the patient to therapy. But in general, either I mobilize them immediately with buddy tapes, or if it's really something I'm concerned about, I really do put them in a cast and, and, and maybe it's, so say it's the ring finger, then I'll have a fiberglass cast. It'll be a shorter forearm based fiberglass cast across the wrist, across the MP joint, across the joint of injury, say the PIP joint. And I'll let it rest for a week or two and then bring them back. I don't like a Lumafoam ever. And if we're talking about sports with that volar plate injury, when do you feel comfortable letting that person return to sports? And it would be would it be different from sport to sport? I mean, obviously, I'm going to let a soccer player go back right away because unless they're the goalie, maybe. But what's your thoughts about letting them play right away with that volar plate injury? I think your point is good. Uh, you know, certainly buddy tape is incredibly protective because you have the normal finger, hopefully the longer normal finger acting as a protective device. So soccer would be right away. If it's a hand intensive sport, if the risk of injury or re-injury is there, I, and I really want them to be able to get back without much worry and with full confidence. My criteria are three. Number one, they really do need to be ideally pain-free or at least dramatically pain-improved. Motion has to be improved or really ideally normal. And the problem, of course, if you have a finger where you're 
protecting it by not moving it fully, I do believe it's more susceptible to re-injury. And then my third criteria is strength. I do use a dynamometer, a grip strength measure in clinic. If I'm really concerned, it's motion, strength, and absent pain. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will continue to talk with Dr. Chuck Goldfarb on hand injuries. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. You're listening to a podcast hosted on the podcast of Matrix. Get your entire podcast library hosted now at podcastermatrix.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, <laughs> you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. We are back and we are talking hand injuries with Dr. Chuck Goldfarb. We've got the volar plate injury. So what else would you consider on your jam finger diagnoses list? Literally, there can be a sprain just like any other joint. I do think that's a real diagnosis. For me, it would be like a grade one or grade two collateral ligament sprain where there is no gross instability, but there's swelling, there's discomfort. And I treat that like any other joint, you know, control it with some ice, with some edema control and mobilize it. And then based on discomfort, increase activities. After that, it gets more serious. A real fracture, whether displaced or not of the proximal middle phalanx is not uncommon. And then we're looking at, for thinking about the distal interphalangeal joint, we're thinking about a mallet finger. We can talk more about in depth of that if you like. Yeah. Or on the palm side, we're talking about an avulsion of the flexor digitorum profundus tip. Let's uh, touch mallet finger because that's a very common one we see in our office from sports. Talk to me a little about how you approach that. Yeah, it's usually not a subtle diagnosis. <laughs> and the classic is, you know, the child is playing whatever sport it might be. And the finger is struck from dorsal in a volar direction while they are trying to extend and they have an injury. And... Obviously, we have to distinguish between a tendon avulsion or a fracture. And in the pediatric population, it's more commonly the fracture. For those patients, again, diagnosis is usually pretty clear. I get a C-arm radiograph immediately to understand if it's a break or if it's a soft tissue injury. And unfortunately, this is an injury where it's hard to get back to play fast. 
and I'll cite Russell Wilson. So one of my friends operated on Russell Wilson. He clearly had a severe mallet, and they labeled it a mallet finger with a joint dislocation. I, I saw the, the pictures. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> they all look funky, right? So it's hard to say. Yeah, they all look funky. But he's coming back at four weeks, which for me would be fast. I think it's usually six to eight weeks. So I'm not exactly sure what was going on there. I'm assuming he's probably going to play with some sort of splint on though when he's doing stuff, right? I, I mean, you would think. I don't know if it's throwing hand or not throwing hand, but I would guess he could get away with a dorsal-only splint that's taped on. But gosh, if that's his throwing hand, I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, it's pretty straightforward, I think. So if it's a soft tissue mallet, then the joint will be well aligned. And it is a, for me, it is a custom splint, full-time extension for six weeks. Age doesn't matter. It's six weeks. And then I reassess them at six weeks. And if they look pretty good, they can go. And that means return to sport. If there's any question, I will splint them for two additional weeks for sports and during sleep and let them start working on motion otherwise. My pearl for that injury is when they're recovering, they will be stiff in the sense that they will not have immediate flexion. They will get their flexion back, I promise. Never tell them to do passive flexion. Other than that, they can kind of get back to activities. Fractures are trickier. And while it used to be that if, you know, if it's more than a third of the joint surface, you have to have surgery, those criteria are not firm. And most of us feel that it's really if the joint is aligned, and that's why you need the perfect lateral x-ray, the joint is aligned, splint it, and it'll be fine. But it gets hard when it's a big chunk of bone and the finger looks funny. And so I tend to operate on those more, even if the criteria are not clear. You mentioned the custom splint for the mallet finger. And you and I are in the same department and I use the stack splint, just the off the shelf one. What is your reasoning for a custom splint? It's not like I obviously, I have the same resources you do. I, I, that's what I've always used. I haven't sent them for custom splints and I haven't had any issues with getting these things to seem to heal. So I'm kind of curious your reasoning for the custom. Again, as, I, as you always do, it's a good point. You know, I do have a tinge of guilt because we're using resources and sometimes these splints are not inexpensive, the custom ones. I do think it's a better splint. It's more comfortable. And I know from my, at least my own experience that the, the chance of compliance, and for me, compliance is it's a, it's 100% of the time, 24-7, no exceptions, is better with a custom splint. But in the right patient, a stack splint that is well-fitting is totally fine. And you're probably more appropriate to use that, to be honest with you. So I don't have any objections to that, just not a not a blue foam splint. <laughs> <laughs> I think the only issue with those sometimes is it sometimes, depending on the kid's size of the finger, sometimes you just, their finger doesn't fit the size bigger or the size smaller. And then, you know, you're kind of got one that's too loose, one that's too snug, and then you, you, you got to get the one that's just right. And I think probably that situation, I do the custom splint, but I, I do put the fear of God into these kids. I don't know how you explain it to them too, as far as making sure that, you know, they're not letting that finger lag. Cause I, I just tell them the clock resets all over again. And then we, we, got to start over. So I, I really kind of stress with them. Are you, I'm a, I'm a typically a six week follow-up or is that kind of what you do or? Yes. On for six weeks. I see them back at six weeks, take the splint off. And really what I'm looking for is do they keep it extended? If they can't keep it extended, can they resist a little very gentle downward pressure? And then that's really about it. And if they look good, they're pain-free. I'll let them start moving. If they have a little bit of a lag or if they're still sore, then that's when I splint them for the additional two weeks. So let's move to the other side. You mentioned the flexor tendon. Yeah, so the baseball finger, so-called baseball finger, is 
far less common. I mean, it's probably, I don't know what your experience has been. I would say it's probably 30 to one mallet finger to baseball finger. I can't um, remember the last one I've seen, honestly. Yeah. It, and it's, it's super, it's, to me, it's a really interesting issue because one, it's a big deal. Flexor digitorum profundus avulsion from the base of the distal phalanx. It's almost always just an avulsion, not a fracture. And classically, we always say you got to fix it. We actually just did a study, not to get too geeky, but we just did a study. It was a retrospective cohort study where we had a group of patients that was fixed and a group of patients that was allowed to return to play without fixing their FDP. Now, I understand this is not high science, but what we confirmed is that it is a big deal to fix a flexor digitorum profundus avulsion. It takes weeks or months, honestly, of therapy regularly or else you get stiff. There's a high complication rate requiring additional surgery. Motion never ends up perfect, meaning you don't ever get that finger completely back in the palm and strength is good. It feels like the right thing to do, but in patients where you just give them an FDS only finger and they can still flex, they just don't get that last little bit, especially if it's the non-dominant hand, they get back to play right away and almost all of them do great. So I always have the conversation and again, for a hand surgeon to say this, it feels a little like heresy, but <laughs> gosh, it, it's becoming tougher and tougher for me to push people to do that surgery. Hmm, interesting. So I, that's good information because again, that's the other thing is if you got a flexor tendon that needs to be dealt with pronto has been always kind of the, the gestalt I've been under and kind of been told to do. So that I'll be interested. Is that something you guys have published already? We presented it and it is in the final round of work with the editor. I will say, you know, that that certainly should be a very careful conversation. And I did an FTP avulsion last week. So it's not as if I won't do the surgery. Sure. I just think, and in kids, it's harder to not do the surgery. And I guess what I would say is, if you're going to do that surgery, you have to do it in the first three weeks. After three weeks, and this gets to your point of timeliness, after three weeks, you should not do the surgery because you won't ever get the tendon back where it goes and your finger will get stiff. And so that made it easier to develop the two cohort groups. What else would be on your your differential? We've talked about the distal phalanx, and we've talked about some around the, the PIP. Maybe we can talk about dislocations of the finger. I mean, what are some concerns and some things you think about a dislocation? I mean, I think most athletic trainers out there have dealt with enough of these. You know, you see the kid come over the sidelines, and they're holding their hand, and, and then, you know, someone reduces it right there, and then, you know, you tape them up and send them back out to play kind of thing. What's your kind of approach to that and your thought process through that, you know, reduction, go play? I'll tell you, one of my strongest sports memories is, you know, when you and I, you know, we took care of the Rams. And I remember the first time I walked into the Rams locker room and being the dorky hand surgeon, what did I look at? <laughs> I looked at hands. And it is a gruesome sight for many of those guys where there's boutonniere deformities and there's swan neck deformities and every which way the fingers are going. And, it, and it's not pretty. And thankfully, most of them are painless. But I guess I would say this. Almost all PIP, and we're really talking about the PIP joint, maybe the MCP joint, but that's a very different story. Maybe the DIP joint, but it's almost always the PIP joint. And almost always, it's a dorsal dislocation. So the middle phalanx goes dorsal to the proximal phalanx, and it's kind of the situation where you kind of you know take a deep breath and the trainer puts it back in. And, and, and thankfully, that usually works. The injury is palmer or volar. The volar plate is injured. And then when you get it back in place, often it's stable as long as there's not a fracture. So that's great. And then again, it's a edema control, buddy taping, and you can get through the game, but you will be swollen and sore after that. 
The one that worries me is when it's a volar dislocation. So if the middle phalanx goes volar, it's a totally different story because by definition, you have a central slip injury. So extensor tendon is injured, and that has to be treated with six weeks of immobilization or else you will not regain full motion of that joint. So very different situation. Your comment about the NFL locker room and the fingers, if anybody wants to see probably the most impressive finger, and I've seen this personally, just look up Tory Holt Rams finger in a Google search, and you will be amazed at what his finger looks like. And he will swear that it helped him catch the ball better when he went untreated for that particular finger injury. So it's it's amazing. It's amazing. It's hilarious. And of course, I jokingly tried to let him let me operate on him. And he would he laughed me off and told of me, course get, get, get of course him, not get away. <laughs> yeah, but ever if he puts his hand up, it's like, where's that finger pointing, dude? It's like not going anywhere straight. It's uh, it's amazing. But yeah, it's it's his it's his little hand trademark now for sure. You get the dislocation. You know, we talk about letting someone go back into play. Are there any other types of dislocations that you get concerned about as far as hey, this is a bigger deal besides the volar dislocation? You know, is an MCP one one that you'd be more concerned about than the PIP or DIP? Yeah, well, the MCP is interesting as well, because most of those, well, let me, I'll cite another great sports example. I don't know if you watched the national championship game for football. I happen to have been, you're a Wisconsinite, I'm from Alabama. Mm -hmm. So of course I retained my (laughs) fanboy status for uh, Alabama football. And I don't know if you remember, but one of the receivers had an MCP joint dislocation and you could see what was happening. It wasn't a PIP, it was definitely an MCP. And so what happened was the trainer and then the doctor go to attempt to reduce it and actually they made it worse because longitudinal traction for an mcp joint can lead to entrapment and then you have to have surgery and that's exactly what happened and i think you know i'm not casting any stones but they went into the tent and i think they came out all everybody was hot and sweaty when they came out of the tent because everyone was trying (laughs) so hard to reduce it and there was zero chance it was going to be reduced and so those are you know a combination of a flexion maneuver with some gentle traction sometimes will work, but many times those MCP joints have to be reduced surgically. So that's one not to overfight. It's a very satisfying injury to fix for somebody on the sidelines when you can let them go back into play with that one because it, it is fairly easy to do. I'll, I'll never forget, I had a clinic one time on a Monday and a kid came in to me who had hurt his finger on Friday night in a football game and came in and, and he had already had x-rays done because you know sometimes in flow for clinic, if they come in with a finger injury, my assistant will send them for an x-ray first because we are going to look at that. And I had a resident with me in the clinic that day, a pediatric resident, and we pulled up the x-rays and he had a, a dorsally dislocated PIP that stayed, dis- it was dislocated all weekend and they didn't think about anything. They didn't think that the deformity was weird and so I walked in the room, I, I shook his hand at the time when we were pre-COVID, when everybody would shake everybody's hand. And I said, hold on one second here. And I, I reduced his finger there. And I said, all right, now tell me what happened. It, it, it was one of those that was satisfying. I think the resident kind of like, uh, I don't think I'm ever going to come into this guy's clinic ever again. <laughs> That's what they do on a regular basis here. But it was one of those things that it, it was easy to do. And it's very satisfying. And, and he felt a zillion times better after he did. I just was surprised that he went three days with it being dislocated and didn't really think to get it looked at or treated until Monday, but I've seen the same. It is remarkable. And it's generally tough kid, you know, and the deformity just must've been interpreted as just swelling, I guess. I don't know. Right. Right. I guess, I guess, you know, we have that discussion a lot. Kids get very concerned and parents get very concerned about the persistent swelling after an injury around one of the IP joints. 
And, you know, I always kind of give them the analogy that, you know, if I took the swelling that was in your finger and put it in your knee, no one would ever notice that you had that swelling there. So it looks like a lot because it's a small joint. But do you, outside of just reassurance, is there anything ever about the swelling in that joint that you do more? I mean, you mentioned doing the Coban to try and help deal with the swelling, but is there anything else that you kind of talk to parents about or the athlete about? I don't. You know, as long as you've assured there's nothing else of significance going on, Unless, even if there is, if there's a fracture and you treat the fracture, or there's a dislocation, you treat the dislocation. I tell families that the swelling, the pain will go away. And for all these injuries, it does. The swelling can be there for six months or more. And I think if you tell them that early, it takes away all the concern. And all of a sudden, it's not that big a deal. As long as the kid can move, pain's under control, strength. And they forget about the swelling, but it does go away. I'm sure we've all jammed our own fingers. And I jammed my wedding ring finger. And couldn't put my ring on for a year. I mean, it, it's unbelievable how long these mm-hmm. joints can stay swollen. So it does go away and it doesn't stress me out as long as I've ruled out the obvious. And I've always, you know, you mentioned your three criteria as far as getting back into sports. And I always tell them the swelling is not part of that criteria for me. I, I'm not worried about the swelling as much as I am the pain and the function and the strength, as you kind of talked about. If they're pain-free, they're functioning fine, but it's swollen. I, I don't worry about that so much in that situation as far as letting that kid go back and do stuff. Yeah, the other thing I would say that, you know, as a really anal retentive hand surgeon is I really do pay careful attention for the alignment of the fingers. And that's more relevant for fractures, but occasionally with kind of subtle dislocations or a dislocation that reduces and maybe not perfectly understanding the alignment. So when I check a kid's finger, again, they usually come in with extension. So you can check their alignment pretty easily with extension. I always compare it to the other side because deformity that may be hereditary is symmetrical. So I check them in extension, which is easy. And depending on the timing of the injury, I try to check them in mid-flexion. And I try to ask them to put both hands at the same level of flexion. And then if it's been a little while, then they can make a full fist. And I'm trying to assess the nails and the alignment. If they can't quite get down, I will use tenodesis. So if if I'm trying to get them to flex their fingers, I'll extend the wrist, which flexes a little bit. And then sometimes squeezing the forearm will simulate flexion. So those are the little tricks that I think can really be helpful in the clinic. And sometimes if you're talking through it, the kid and the parent don't even know you're, you know, you're examining them and it can really be gold. Yeah. Good little pointers there. We'll kind of finish up with this is just, you know, as you, as a hand surgeon, are there things, specific hand injuries that you feel absolutely should be in your hands, an athlete's injury, and we won't give every possible injury possible here, but that you think absolutely needs to be in your hands? You know, obviously there's always a comfort factor there. You know, some sports medicine docs may be much more comfortable dealing with hand things than, than another. And obviously you, you should be referring if you don't feel comfortable dealing with it. But, but are there things that you think you really has to be in your hands? I feel so lucky working with you and at an institution like ours where we have really regular communication in all directions. And so I've never, ever felt like, oh my God, I wish he or she had said that to me sooner. I guess the ones that alarm me from a finger perspective would be injuries on the flexor side. So flexor tendon injuries and like a a mallet fracture. So a DFE joint fracture that's borderline. Obviously, I'd rather be involved with that. I think I probably should be involved with volar dislocations of the PIP joint. Gamekeepers, you know, as long as the examining physician is comfortable, I don't think I need to be involved. And the one other injury I'll throw out there, just because it can be so problematic, are scaphoid fractures. Hmm. Um, I know we're mainly talking about fingers, not wrist, but I think all listeners will appreciate there's just a lot of nuance there and 
especially depending on exactly the fracture and interpretation of displacement. That's another one that can get tricky fast. And so I, I tend to enjoy seeing those sooner rather than later. Sure. All good stuff. And I agree. You are a, a huge, great resource. You and, and Lindley Wall, especially since I deal a lot with that pediatric age group, it's great having colleagues who are readily accessible and really just willing to just take a quick look at something and just give us reassurance and say, nope, yeah, send it my way. That makes a big difference. So I think, you know, obviously for those of the sports medicine physicians that are new to practice, that's where it's really helpful to make sure whether you're in private practice or in academics, make sure you get those relationships with your specialist early on in your practice. I can't stress that part enough because once you have those good relationships, then it makes things a zillion times easier as far as I can just say, hey, I'm going to talk with one of my hand partners and just I'll, I'll let you know what they think. I think we're probably going to be OK, but I just want another set of eyes. And I think that reassures families, too. That you knew that you are doing that due diligence and, and just saying, hey, I'm getting one other look at this and go from there. Yeah, that is super advice. And I would say to the younger sports medicine specialists out there, if, if you're finding that that specialist is not eager to have a relationship and not willing to take the time in an expeditious fashion, it shouldn't be 24 hours later, in my opinion, then find another. But, you know, it, this is it's a great relationship. It works for the patient. It works for Mark. It works for myself and my partner, Lindley Wall. It's just a win all the way around. And, and it should be a feel-good win, not a, oh, God, I got to text so-and-so Dr. Hand. You know, he's he or she may not get back to me. You know, that should not be the experience. Right. Exactly. Agreed. Yeah. And that's that's a big plus. So we'll finish up with, uh, we have a little feature we call the Pearl of the Podcast. I know you gave a Pearl earlier, but we like to kind of have a little Pearl that your take-home point, your little golden nugget that you think is important when we're talking about a hand or finger injury in sports. Mark, I, I will answer that question by going back and alluding to something I said before. The best position to examine the fingers for any rotational or angulatory deformity, and this really applies to fracture, but hopefully many fractures are treated non-surgically. But if you're considering a referral to the surgeon, you need to understand alignment. And so mid-flexion is the position. And so you can get fooled if you only assess an extension or only assess inflection. And so what I do is I ask mom or dad to come stand behind me. I put both elbows on the table for the child. I have their hands facing me, so they're really generally fully pronated. And then I get them to flex into that mid-flexion position. So mom's standing over my shoulder typically. We're looking at the fingers together. If it's perfect, it's perfect. If it's terrible, it's terrible. But if it's in between, mom and I make a decision together about whether it's too much. And, you know, you and I may not know what mom thinks and how important finishing the season is. And that's fine. But together we make that decision and I document that. And that's where going back to the lovely Alumafoam evil splint that it is, when they're in that for several weeks, that makes that assessment a lot more challenging because they are so stiff. And then it is a little bit harder to assess that. And then you almost kind of have to force them a little bit into some flexion to kind of see is there a difference. So no more aluminum foam splints. Get rid of them. Yeah. I'd like to thank Dr. Chuck Goldfarb for his time today. We will be sure to get you on the podcast again so we can maybe go through some wrist injuries next time through. If you have any interest in other hand-related topics, be sure to check out his podcast, The Upper Hand Podcast. You can find that, I'm sure, on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate you taking the time to listen today. Be sure to check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. We thank you for your five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, and we do appreciate your feedback. 
I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.